Hello, friends, and welcome to the Bikes for Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick, and I am your host. And we've got a great episode for y'all today. My guest is Liam Glenn. He just won the Highland Trail 550, and he did it on a single-speed, rigid bike. Truly an impressive effort, especially whenever you consider that racers like James Hayden and Josh Ibbett were also in the field. And you know, anytime you see those names, at least when I see those names, I think, hey, this is going to be a pretty quick race. So it was just even more impressive to me that he was able to complete this course and win it on a single speed rigid bike. It really made me want to uh, reach out and talk to him. I have to be honest, you know, I'd never heard of Liam before. And uh, when I went to go research him, there wasn't a whole lot of information. But that's one of the things that I really do love about podcasting at this time is that there's a guy like Liam who, as I find out, was working towards being a professional road cyclist and went through a few different variations in his cycling career and um, has actually been at the Highland Trail Race for a while. He originally won it in 2016, which was his first time to enter it. And um, it's just been a journey all the way from then until now. It was just a lot of fun to get to chat with him and pick his brain a little bit and just learn about him. It's one of my favorite things to do is just get to know the people in this community who we may not know that much about. Um, you can watch a dot and you can you know see some pictures of, of his bike on the internet, but uh, not a lot of information out there. So this was a really fun episode for me. I really did enjoy getting to know Liam and was truly impressed by his story. I think he really does represent what is at the heart of bikepacking. And he's really just a great steward for the sport and an all-around nice guy. I really did enjoy talking to him, and I'm looking forward to seeing what he does in the future. I'm certainly not going to uh, sleep on him anymore. Anytime I see Liam Glenn uh, at the start list, I'm going to add him to my uh, watch list for sure. All right, well, before we get to the episode, let's take a moment to thank our latest sustaining patrons that have signed up since the last episode. You may have noticed that there wasn't an episode last week, so these are patrons that have come in in the last two weeks, and there is a whole slew of them. So, oh boy, oh boy, let's get to name reading. Let's give a shout out to Jim Phillips, Zachary McCool, Aaron Dibbon, Andrew Kepler, Ronald Alish. Oh, this one's going to be tough. Wish me luck. Jucka Ron Kanan. I hope I got that one right, or at least close to it. We also have Dan Green, Mike Christensen, Russell Nethercott, Michael Battis, Hugh Williams, Jeremiah Shepard, Brad Jade, Doug Carroll, Bobby Fenster, Jake Thornton, Selena Shoemaker, Stephen Fuller, Warwick Poole, yes, I'm still going, Jeff Akins, Joel Meddings, L.B. Morris, Kevin L. Faith, Garrett Farden, Ben Jackson, Andrea Toro, Jay Murphy, Travis Bell, and Steve Apostle. 29 new patrons. Wow. Thank y'all for real. Uh, we have set a goal over here of hiring me as a full-time Bikes or Death podcast host. If you'd like to find out how you can hire me and make sure that we never miss a week of podcast ever again, I hate that. No one likes that. 
If I could make this my full-time job, you'd never have to worry about going without missing a week of the Bikes or Death podcast. So if you'd like to find out how you can support the show and help our initiative to hire me as the full-time host of this wonderful show, I'd love for you to head over to patreon.com forward slash bikes or death. And you can learn more about the show, what you get if you support it. And my job application for your consideration is also posted there if you'd like to give that a read. You know, I have to be honest, whenever I set the goal of making this my full-time job, I had no idea what to expect, but y'all have been stepping up big time and it's cool. Uh, we are really doing this thing. So if you want to jump on board and help make this a reality and make sure that these podcasts come on a regular basis, better, better, more, better. That's the goal. More and better. As the support for the show grows through Patreon, so will the perks and the benefits that come to patron members. For example, this weekend, I am heading back to Stillwater, Oklahoma. I've got some great guests lined up there. And while there, we're going to be releasing a new segment of the Bikes or Death podcast that's for patrons only called the Bikes or Death After Party. So essentially what this is going to be is an opportunity for us to invite previous guests back on the show. We will do a Facebook Live with them and you will be invited to attend and ask questions and interact in real time. So this weekend, whenever I'm in Stillwater, I'm going to catch back up with Dr. Seth Wood, who has no doubt been one of the most popular guests I've ever had. I've never seen that level of outpouring of support and just appreciation on an episode before. Um, so I know that one really resonated with y'all as it did with me. So when I'm in Stillwater, I'm going to catch up with Seth. We're going to do a Facebook Live and give patrons an opportunity to be part of that conversation, ask questions. And I really look at this as an opportunity to, you know, broaden these conversations and, and learn from each other and hopefully grow from each other. And so, you know, if that's something that would interest you, Maybe that will be enough to move the needle to get you to sign up as a patron. I've also lined up another after-party episode with Andrew Onerma, who was another guest that was recently on the podcast that was extremely well-received. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun to continue that conversation as well and including you in it. So again, to learn more, you can head over to patreon.com forward slash bikes or death, and you can get all that and more for as little as a dollar a month. That is all, everybody. I can't wait to get into this episode. It was really great to catch up with Liam Glenn all the way over in UK. Thank you, Liam, so much for taking some time to come on the podcast and sharing your story with my audience. Without further ado, let's have Miles Arbor take it away with the Bikes or Death theme song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your boss, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You let that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. Do 
Joining me today is Liam Glenn, who uh, is fresh off winning the Highland Trail 550, and you did it without gears or suspension. So first off, man, congratulations on taking down the W. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks a lot. And also, man, I appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast. You're like fresh off. Um, God, what did you finish? Like just like a week ago? Uh, yeah, last Tuesday. So yeah, yeah. just over a week. Yeah, so it's, we're sitting here on Thursday, so I guess you're nine days out. So, uh, obvious question is, how are you feeling physically? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mentally is a different question, but uh, yeah. yeah. So physically, yeah, not too bad on the surface. Like I, I don't feel that tired anymore. The main problem is my feet. Um, it's pretty wet in Scotland, as you can probably imagine. So I've actually got trench foot right now. Um, so it's like what what the old First World War soldiers used to get. Um, yeah, yeah. The soles of my feet, and all the all the uh, what do you call them? The nerves are like pretty damaged in the soles of my feet. Have so, you? Uh, is that something you've experienced before? And have okay, so you don't yeah. even know what the recovery process is like, or no? Or I mean, I think it's just wait, wait. I'm just walking around barefoot everywhere. The, yeah trying to dry them out yeah using the excuse not to go into the office and walk around my house barefoot yeah uh, oh nice well that's a great segue uh, just to kind of get to know you a little bit better where do you live and what do you do as a day job so i live in uh, bristol in the uk so that's kind of south southwest england and so i work as a an aerospace engineer uh, for airbus um, Whoa! So yeah, it sounds it sounds a bit fancy, but uh, the reality of the day to day is just sitting at a computer, like most other jobs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the end result is maybe a little bit more wow factor than yeah. most jobs. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you, you are a bit. Uh, you very rarely actually get to see what you've <laughs> what you've designed or whatever. Yeah. So, uh, what is an Airbus? Is that uh, like an airplane? Uh, yeah. So it's. It's a like aircraft manufacturer. So it's basically Boeing in the US. It's the European okay. equivalent. Okay, cool. Well, um, you know, as I was researching for this interview, I saw that you also won this race in 2016. And I'm curious. So you've actually seen the evolution of uh, this event and the sport over the course of like five years. And I'm, I'm curious how has been the response? I mean, I know I reached out to you almost immediately and asked for an interview. What's been the response difference between that five years? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of funny, really. Yeah, it, it's almost like people's kind of memory doesn't stretch back five years ago. I remember just in 2016, it was just a, another kind of small, low-key, low-key race and kind of nothing came out of it at the end. But yeah, this year, the media attention I think it's yeah, partly to do with the kind of growth of the sport overall, and then maybe also a bit of lack of events in COVID times. But yeah, you kind of I, I finished, and then suddenly there's all this interest, and it, it's taken me by surprise a little bit because it's uh, quite a bit quite a bit different to five years ago. Yeah. Did Did you have any uh, podcasting requests or article requests or anything like that? Yeah, not at all. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. And then and I, and so what kind? I mean, I you know I'm in the media, but I I stay in my own little bubble, and I'm I'm curious. I mean, there's GCN that now is doing bike packing. I mean, Velo News is covering bike packing. You know. How, what has the response been like? Yeah, so um, it's still like limited to cycling media, but in, in the UK, a few of the kind of more major 
online platforms like bikeradar.com and roadcc kind of reached out to do pieces uh, yeah into interviews or stuff about my bike yeah um, but yeah just generally it gets like the result gets reported um which just wouldn't have happened five years ago I, when i was researching it there wasn't a lot of information i mean i didn't find any other interviews that had been done with you you don't even have a lot of pictures of yourself on instagram or you no. don't have a lot of pictures of your bikes or <laughs> so you know it's, it's that is the exciting thing about being a podcaster right now is that a guy can roll fresh off of a, a really cool win. I mean, the single speed rigid is just like icing on the cake, you know, and then, you know, just sit down and be like, dude, let's talk about it. You know, do you get excited? Is, is it more nerve wracking to like do the podcast or is it more nerve wracking to sign up to do a, uh, to a, do a, one of these races? Uh, yeah, it's kind of different. I think it's, it's diff- difficult to compare really. Um, that's a good point yeah so i don't know yeah it's you, you get nervous in different ways i guess that the race is like yeah it's obviously a lot of months and sometimes years kind of leading up to it but then also kind of riding my bike is kind of what i know as well so it's not easy but it's it's simple like you just keep pedaling so yeah kind of, and you've kind been of there before be yeah yeah exactly. you know what you're getting yourself into speaking of getting yourself into familiar territory you know, what is it like to sign up for one of these really big events and with the idea that you are going to absolutely get yourself, push yourself to the limit? I mean, that's got to be like intimidating a little. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think there's, yeah, the risk is you kind of build it up too much, I think, in your head, especially if you've got uh, kind of a chance of getting a good result out of it as well. Like I definitely, so I, I started in 2019 as well, two years ago. Okay. Um, and kind of, yeah, going into that as well, I was definitely in the kind of racing mentality. And yeah, I think that the problem with that is as soon as stuff starts going wrong, it makes it a lot harder to keep going, I think, than um, if you kind of just, your your goal is to finish. So yeah, I think it's a bit of a mental game really to kind of find a, a reason why you'd, you you really want to finish and, and not just like focus on, on the race, race aspect. Yeah. I actually want to ask you that question later. Um, that that's always something I'm very interested in, in like what keeps you motivated. But I'd like to touch on that later because you know I would like to get just a little bit more of your history and find out when you were bit by the bike packing bug. Yeah. Like I said, I think the only things I found is that you went one in 2016, and uh, I found an old blog post uh, from 2015 where you had made your own bike packing gear. So yeah. I know you've been, you know, dabbling in this for a while. Yeah. So I've been kind of riding bikes, I don't know, since I was 16, I guess. So like 14 years ago. Uh, and I've kind of done a bit of everything in that time. So when I started, I, I was racing cross country, um, XC. Uh, so that, that's kind of what I did through most of university. But then kind of as, as races were getting shorter, I kind of, I figured that it didn't really suit me. Like for me, it was the, the like longer stuff that suited me. So I, I did a few years where I was road racing as well. And so I did that to a fairly high level. So I did a, a season in, in Belgium where I was like full time. So that was, yeah, just as I was finishing university. So I guess I was about 23, so seven years ago. Um, okay. So, yeah, so I was kind of trying to make it pro, basically, yeah. um, on the road. Um, but, yeah, I had a few crashes and one big one, especially, where I broke my femur. 
and yeah that was kind of I don't know I got a bit burnt out with it and then that that crash was kind of the icing on the cake and I was like I have so much respect for those uh road cyclists the pro road cyclists that just take the most epic crashes a lot of times they'll just get up and keep racing and they just keep coming back over and over and over again that's the thing is that I always think about on those is those guys are just so tough. Yeah. 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 But Super I got to imagine yeah. it gets in your head, right? Like a big crash like that. It's, it's gotta be hard to shake. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, that one as well, I had like a bad experience around it as well, like getting to the hospital and stuff And it. Yeah. I was just kind of burnt out on the whole racing thing. I think at that point. Yeah. Uh, so where did you transition to from there? Yeah. So did you I get mean, burnout on cycling at, in total or was it, or what kind of, what was that evolution like? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I was a bit burnt out on cycling, but like for me, the reason why I got into cycling in the first place was all about exploration. So yeah, when I was first got into it, when I was like 16, I'd go off for like six or seven hours at the weekend, just on my own in the mountains exploring. We were living in Portugal at the time. Um, and so that, that's kind of always why I've been in, like interested in cycling and like in the off season, even while I was racing, I'd go off and do um, like overnight trips and stuff. So I kind of always been doing it, yeah. but then, yeah, stopping racing and kind of starting a, a real job in, in quotes <laughs> was kind of, yeah, I basically had no excuse to not just do that all the time, really. So that's yeah. kind of when, when it became my like the only type of cycling I sort of did. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it lended itself more to, uh, to that kind of cycling to be able to do that. Yeah. And you just have your weekends and spend those out like, yeah. Doing overnighters and exploring. So when was this in, in reference to like bikepacking, were you like aware of bikepacking and emulating it? Or were you just one of these people that was bikepacking before they even knew what they were doing? Yeah. I mean, I, I was like, uh, an avid follower of like a few blogs and I used to go on the, I think it was bikepacking.net. I don't, I don't know if that forum still exists, but that used to be where, that used to be where like the Tour Divide and all the races were kind of followed, like some of Scott Morris's blogs and stuff like that. So I I was, yeah, well into it from the kind of. It is still online. I just, I looked it up. So (laughs) all the, all the forums and, and this is really a great archive of like, if you go way back to the very beginning, which I haven't done in many years, but, great bike bike packing archive there yeah so i mean yeah I was, I was always like super interested in it from the early i don't know what you call this decade early 10s so when did you get into the racing aspect of it i guess it's not too surprising that you eventually went into racing because you're obviously a pretty competitive guy and yeah so when did when did your endurance racing career start quote unquote career yeah so yeah so it was in in 2016 basically so I'd just started a full-time job at Airbus in September, I think. And I kind of, I knew about Highland Trail uh, from a few years, kind of following it from afar. So yeah, that winter I kind of put my entry in and then that, that was my, I think it was probably my second bike packing race I did um, <laughs> in May. Yeah. So, I mean, wow. I, think it's a, I think it's a lot harder to get into Highland Trail now than it was then as well. So I'm not sure with my resume if I would have got in. So it was your second uh, bike racing event and you won it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah, not, wow. not that expected, but every, yeah, it's kind of, 
yeah, it's still. How do you think your? Uh, do you think that your road racing uh, experience and stuff serves you to? I, I'm always interested, so because we're seeing a lot of this crossover now in a lot of different cycling disciplines. So, how did that benefit you? Yeah, I mean, I think the like the most obvious is the fitness. So, I think that carries over. I mean, you do a lot of like when you're racing road, you just do a lot of miles, and yeah. you kind of got those in the bank. Um, so I, th- I think that, yeah, anyone who road races, who has more of a kind of endurance, uh, like phenotype or kind of endurance physiology, will will carry that forward into bikepacking. And then um, you just need to add the mental side and some yeah, maybe exactly. different technical aspects, but the endurance you have looked kind of. Yeah. And, and yeah. mentally, you're probably used to digging deep in terms of big efforts and all that too. So that'll, that'll help. Yeah. I, I think the bit that, like I really back then anyway, I really wasn't uncertain of was the the like sleep deprivation aspect. Cause yeah, I mean, when you're like racing, you're just obsessed with getting your nine hour sleep a night. Yeah. Uh, and it was like the end of the world if I got a bad night's sleep or something <laughs> and then having to transition into like doing it, getting a few hours sleep, like voluntarily. Um, that was quite hard. So, I mean, I had, I had no idea like what I was capable of in terms of sleep in 2016. Yeah. Now, what about the nutrition and the training that, uh, you know, if you had a, if you were on a team, I assume that they had people that you're helping dial that in. So is that also a part of it? Yeah, maybe a little bit. I mean, at the, at the level uh, that I was racing, um, we didn't really have a, a team nutritionist or anything. When you're racing, I think you have to be looking at your food and cooking, cooking well and eating well. That helps in your day to day. Yeah. Um, like I was always making my own like energy bars and stuff, uh, even when I was racing. Oh, wow. Can you talk more about your nutrition? And so if you say managing and, and, you know, making sure you're getting a proper nutrition, what does that look like for you? Well, it's, it's pretty different day to day than in, in a race. Like it's kind of the complete opposite. So yeah, in normal life, I'm just trying to eat as many vegetables as I can, basically. Yeah. Um, that's a good rule of thumb. Whereas in the race, it's basically just all about like calories in. Um, and it's it's kind of dependent on what you can buy as well. You are relying on on Highland Trail anyway. You're relying on these like little village shops right? Um, with a kind of unknown selection. So yeah, I think my diet during the race was pretty terrible, actually. Um, I basically just ate chocolate bars and sweets. Uh, oh my for, gosh. For four days, yeah. Um, is that something that you just find that you can keep down? Cause I'm not, I don't have a sweet tooth. So the idea of just shoving a bunch of candy bars down my mouth for three days, <laughs> just, I would be, my stomach would be a wreck, you know? So, yeah. I mean, my stomach was a wreck and like my, I had loads of ulcers in my mouth. So, um, I probably wouldn't recommend what I did to be honest. Cause I think if it, if it was much longer than the four days or whatever it took me, I might've been running into some problems. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Let's fill in the gap real quick. So between 2016 and and 2021, you said you did Highland Trail in 2019. Do you have any other, um, I don't know, notable events or anything else that you'd like to fill in the blanks there? Um, Not really. I mean, I think it's, yeah, I just had like quite a lot of DNFs really, which was kind of, kind of like kind of built up in kind of frustration, um, which is why this year felt so good. Um, But in so the year, yeah, 2017, I started the the TCR. So yeah, after 2016, when I won that, I was kind of looking for the next thing and TCR was where all yeah. the 
best competition was but that that was kind of a funny year so there was a one of the riders died on the first night he got hit by a car and that just like really messed up my mind and I was yeah I was kind of wondering why why we were doing this stuff and yeah so it just eventually ended up just kind of touring around Europe yeah. for a week yeah that's hard we've seen other races where uh, athletes have been killed on the race course and it, it's heavy it's yeah. heavy yeah it's kind of put me off doing anything on the road to be honest like I don't yeah I'm quite quite happy taking risks myself like if I was mountain biking on technical train but I don't think I'm ready to like put my life in the hands of someone else yeah that's what it really comes down to I think uh that's that's a huge thing that draws me to just get away from roads is just this a safety factor. I don't know um, what it's like there, but you know, in America, I'm reading stories of cyclists that get killed on a daily basis, you know, locally in the state in the nation. Just, I was reading one just this morning, actually about a guy in San Antonio. And I mean, obviously we're more aware of it because we're in the cycling community um, but it is an issue. And, uh, I don't, again, I don't know how it is there, but here our laws aren't really designed to protect the cyclist or really have any type of repercussion for the people who, you know, the one I was reading about this morning was a lady, she was drunk, hit a cyclist and she's going to get probation, you know, and that's it. She killed him. You know, she, he was yeah. husband, father, all this stuff. And, you know, he's gone and, uh, she's just going to get probation and get a DWI ticket and that's it. So anyway, sorry to, yeah, no, is, is it similar there? I guess is the question. Yeah. yeah so it's, it's kind of same in the UK. Yeah. Whereas that it seems like there's a, there's a bit of like a right to drive kind of mentality, yeah. um, which sometimes seems to trump the right to life. Yeah. It's maybe not as bad as the U S but, um, like some of the countries in Europe are much better. Um, they're kind of, Dutch Belgian countries where there's like a presumed liability on the part of the motorist so yeah you're presumed liable if you're involved in a in a crash um so yeah it, it kind of depends on on the country but sure yes. in in yeah in general I think that uh, most of us find in in as crazy as it seems is I would imagine that you almost feel safer out on the Highland Trail 550 with no sleep than you do driving or riding down any road. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I'm a lot more comfortable uh, being sleep deprived when, you know, you just ride off the trail or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, it does, doesn't feel responsible. Like, even if you don't damn it, like, even if you don't hurt yourself on the road, like, you could cause somebody else issues, like even the person in the car, if they have to swerve around you because you're wobbling all over the place. So, right. Yeah. I'm not sure how I feel about the road stuff. And that was, so the TCR was kind of an experiment, but um, not one, I think I'll, I'll repeat. <laughs> yeah. It's something that doesn't call to me either. And, you know, teach their own and everybody gets to make that call for themselves, but I certainly uh, can uh, relate to your sentiment. Now, describe for me and everyone else listening. You're, I, I googled it. You're about six, six and a half hours away from where this race took place up in Scotland. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'm from America. I know it rains a lot there. I've seen <laughs> the pictures, but can you describe what the race is and, and what kind of what it's like? Yeah. So, the kind of yeah, the basic premise of it is um, big loop around the Scottish Highlands. 
so for don't, those that don't really know the UK, like the, the Scottish Highlands are like kind of our Rockies or our Alps or whatever. That's kind of where all the big mountains are. Mm-hmm. It's like the least populated part of the of the island. So the race starts in, in Tindrum, which is like just as you kind of come in, enter the Highlands and you do a kind of like a big loop up to near the north coast. Um, and then you come down the west coast. Uh, which is the kind of crux of the route. Um, so yeah, the first half's fairly rolling, and then the second half is where most of the the hills, the pushing, and the the fun riding. Oh, interesting. You do you know if the race director did that on purpose? Yeah, I mean, I, I think he did. Yeah, it's kind of a bit of a split personality, and it kind of lulls you in. You kind of tick over the halfway distance mark. But you, yeah, if you've done it before, if you've researched that, you know that you're nowhere near the halfway time mark. Yeah. I'm really curious now because that's what I'm picturing is, yeah, it kind of lulls you into this false sense of a groove that you're in. And then then it just kicks you in the face. And I wonder yeah. what the DNF percentage for first timers is once they get to that second half. Yeah. Well, it's funny, actually, because I think, I think the DNF rate might actually be higher if you're coming back to the race so i think it kind of relates a bit to your your motivation so i think if you're doing it for the first time the goal mm. is is to finish right um and so you've got that just driving you forwards whereas if, if you're coming back you're, the temptation is to try and beat your time from before and if the conditions aren't as good or stuff's not going well that yeah there's less incentive just to keep plodding on right so so i think they are uh, the dnf rate is actually better if it's your first time that yeah, makes sense. That makes sense. And I, I guess nowadays, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, sometimes ignorance is bliss, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, 550 miles. How much climbing do you remember? Uh, yeah, so I only learned in meters. It's about 16,000, 15 to 16,000 meters, which, yeah, in feet, I'm not sure. Uh, we, we can do the math if we want to. Yeah, I don't know, 50,000 feet or something like that, I guess. Yeah. So part of it is fairly easy going, and then the second half, hike a bike. So what, what kind of terrain are you covering? So it's it's a kind of a, a mix. So, yeah, there's some of the hike a bike is just it's steep steep hills, so you can't ride up it. Um, but there's, there's a few sections where it's like a kind of flat hike a bike. So there's one in particular, which is like, called the Leadmore Traverse when you finish off the Northern Loop, which is maybe like 10 miles of like kind of flat hiker bike where it's just kind of semi non-existent trail. Um, it's kind of a basically like the Allen, there's, there's two trails with a sort of big gap in the middle of them and you just like sort of push your way across that gap of nothing. So yeah, there's, there's lots of different types of hiker bike. <laughs> yeah. Now, is this all like developed trails and roads or is there any like, orienteering involved it sounds a little off map almost yeah i mean it's it's mostly mostly good good trails um so yeah i guess that the bulk of the distance is probably like state roads so in scotland there's lots of big shooting estates so it's kind of the tracks that they've created to get around to their various shoots um so that those would be like kind of gravel double track type things um so that's probably the bulk of it and then there's a bunch of single track and then yeah some occasional bits where it's it's sort of a line on the map maybe but on the ground <laughs> there's there's nothing there <laughs> <laughs> so uh have you ever got lost on it or do you know the route pretty well now 
yeah it's it's pretty it's pretty easy to follow route and you've always got your like the, just the line on the gps to follow yeah um, so i think it'd be pretty hard to get lost more than you know a few minutes so oh yeah the other question i wanted to ask was about what kind of like resources i know you mentioned it a little bit but i was looking at the map and you can tell how unpopulated it is once you get up north up there so what kind of resources were on the route for you yeah so yeah planning your resupply is uh, quite a big part of the the race probably to your like american audience there's a lot more resupply points so, like i know some of the us races you can going days without resupply but for uk riders with like there's a pub like within 10 miles of you at any point on in the country <laughs> so we kind of got used to it but there's yeah there's one stretch where it kind of depends on on what schedule you're riding at but there's a kind of 24 hours where you have to be pretty self-sufficient um, with food. And yeah, the, the big thing is just timing, like the shops being open. Yeah. Because um, they're, they're just sort of small village shops uh, with, with limited opening hours. So how crucial was getting that timing right to your success? Yeah, it, it was pretty important. There's, yeah, there's one shop near the far north, um, which opens especially for the race. Like they're, they're big like kind of fans of the race and they'll they'll have the the dots up on track leaders and watch the riders come in so they open especially for the race and kind of that that's a kind of crucial crucial resupply because without that you've got another 100k until you can get something so i think that it definitely helped me knowing having done the route before and i had a pretty good plan or pretty good idea of depending on my schedule like where i would resupply because you 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 don't want to be waiting for stuff to open basically no, um, not if you're trying to win. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Either that or plan your uh, your rest uh, to be right at the general store or whatever yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah. And time it well. Well, let's, uh, I really want to talk about your bike. Um, we don't yeah, talk yeah. about the bikes a whole lot, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I've never heard of a Scrooge. <laughs> and the fact that you did this route on a single speed rigid stood out to me. And I think a lot of people, like I was looking at uh, pictures from like all the years previous and like what kind of bikes for everybody else riding. And it seems like a full suspension 29er or suspension with really fat tires. It gave me the impression that it's pretty gnarly uh, terrain. So tell us what you, what your bike was and and also like why you chose to run it. Yeah. So I was riding, um, it's called a, a stooge scrambler, a steel frame, steel fork as well, fully rigid. It's a bit of a throwback, I guess, to some of the kind of clunkers from the the start of mountain bike. Uh, so it's got like twin twin top tubes, and like mm-hmm. a really raked raked fork. The main reason I bought it was kind of how cool it looks, to be honest. Yeah, it, it's um, an awesome looking bike, <laughs> striking. But yeah, so I mean, I've, I've been riding like rigid single speed for a few years over winter mainly, but then I, I got that bike last year, and yeah, I think it's got got, got quite progressive geometry, so it. In a, in a weird kind of way, it's pretty good downhill. Like if, if you like getting r- your eyes rattled out of their sockets. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I was just having loads of fun on it over winter. And so they kind of planted the seed uh, of maybe I should do Highland Trail on this bike. Um, and I think as well, I, I was looking for a bit of a different experience because in, in 2016 and 2019, I'd done, I'd used a full sus 29er with, with gears and everything. Um, mm. And I think if I'd have used the same bike again, I'd have probably got sucked back into the, the kind of racing mentality. Whereas with this bike, 
I genuinely had no idea if I could even get around on it. Yeah. Um, it kind of, yeah, it just got me into the the like mindset of just like having fun and kind of just focusing on getting around more than anything it else. T- it took the pressure off of feeling, you know, the pressure to, to win or push the front of the race, I would assume, because yeah, you didn't know if you could do it. Um, totally different experience. And uh, so there's a question mark there. So I can imagine that just took off a lot of the pressure. Yeah, absolutely. I recently set up, well, not too recently. I mean, it's probably been about a year ago, but my uh, Salsa Fargo rigid single speed, I've been riding. I went on a gravel ride last night. I ride it on mountain bike trails or ride around town. And I've like realized that it really does. Um, it makes, makes riding a lot more interesting. And I'm wondering what, what's been your experience with that and what, what draws you to it, you know? Cause I yeah. think most people like, I mean, right. If you like immediately hear it and this is, this was my approach or my thought previously was like, it's just, it sounds terrible. It sounds like you're punishing yourself, but, but now I think it's quite fun. So yeah. What's been your experience? Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things that uh, you kind of, it's difficult to describe unless you've tried it, but yeah, it's just, I feel like it, you kind of see the trails or you feel the trails in a totally new way because you, you don't have a choice like whether to shift down, whether to take it easy. All you've got is can you get it up this hill or not, or are you going to be mm-hmm. pushing? So it really simplifies things. And like every, every little hill becomes a challenge. For me, it's, it's really great on, on some of the trails and routes I've got locally uh, that I've ridden like, yeah, countless times just to kind of spice things up a bit. Yeah. So I think that that's the appeal. There's also like the rigid part of it also appears like it is a bit masochistic. Um, yeah. And that, that kind of does appeal to me, just the challenge of trying to get down stuff and yeah, just trying yeah. to find, find the smoothest line. Well, I think it's fun to, uh, you've been doing this a while and it's just a fun way to approach a same event, a same trail in a, in a new way. And I mean, that's, that was the appeal for me because I've lived in this town my whole life and been riding the same mountain bike trails for 20 plus years and they got boring, but get on a rigid single speed. And now all of a sudden, you know, you're standing up and you're having to like find new lines and you're having to be much more active. And it was like, I felt like I was a kid again, you know, riding my BMX around, you know, it just, it's, it's very freeing. It doesn't, it seems limiting, it seems like there's so much you couldn't do and, you know, I need all these gears and all this stuff. Um, but it's not, it's freeing. It's mentally freeing. Like you said, you don't ever have to worry about it. It's like either you can or you can't. So that's it. And, uh, you don't have to worry about yeah. the stuff breaking and all that stuff. So, um, I get it. Um, but it's still even, okay. Okay. That's cool. Like we get that, but now let's talk about actually winning a, a race like this against, you know, James Hayden and Josh Ibbit, Isbit, I'm sorry, I'm getting his last name a little bit wrong. And the other gentleman, Andrew, I think, I mean, you were in the, in there with, or Andrew Hutchinson, Hutchison, yes. Uh, I mean, you're, you're in there with some really fast dudes, you know, yeah. so like what, and, and we've even seen like Bailey Newbury and uh, I just interviewed Seth Wood on a single speed. What's going on there? You think, I mean, it's so interesting, right? It's like you have the carbon high tech, tons of money dialed in versus your self-proclaimed clunker a little bit, uh, bridges single speed. Like does that, can you like quantify that? Like what's going on there? You're an engineer. Yeah. I'm not sure what it is. Cause logically that, yeah, they should be slower, but yeah, I think it's, 
like I think if you've if you've got a choice as well, like if you've got a choice of gears, I find that like sometimes you can just play it a bit safe. Uh, so you like shift down, take it easy. Whereas, yeah, if you're on a single speed, you kind of just go a bit hell for leather. And sometimes, sometimes you can surprise yourself. Um, like all, all around the trail, I was waiting for when like the wheels were going to fall off. <laughs> but like each each hill, I just felt like kept getting up them. And yeah, you just realize that you can kind of push yourself much harder than you originally thought, I guess. Yeah, and I think if, you, if you're having fun as well, like that, that's a huge a huge thing like if you're having fun the, the kind of pain and discomfort um you don't feel it as much now i mean you were able to uh i the one great thing about track leaders is you can go back and re-watch the dots and fast time so i've watched it several times and you were able to to get and maintain a really strong lead towards the end of the race but before that there was a lot of back and forth uh and it was it was pretty tight I'm trying to like picture how the single speed competed against a geared bike. You know, um, you know, you often see, I mean, oh, one theory that I'm thinking in my head is the one Bailey Newbury talked about where, you know, he was walking some hills, which allowed him to be fresher on other parts. And so it was like a forced recovery. Uh, yeah. How did that play out in the race? Yeah. So basically every like flat or tarmac section, I just got smoked. Yeah, I could like right at the start. I can remember just watching everyone like fly off into the distance, out of sight. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, here we go. <laughs> I'm just going to be on the I'm on my own for the rest of the race. But then we hit the first bits of trail and the first climbs, and like you realise you don't actually lose that much time. Like in a kind of distance, you're a long way back, but in terms of time, you're not that far, and you can catch it back up. And yeah, I think that that you know Bailey's thing about walking and. I think that that helps as well to just to kind of change the muscles that you're using. Um, and especially if you've trained on single speed all winter, like you get pretty good at walking. I did a lot of running as well this year. So like I, I knew that when I was walking, I was making time on people. When you were walking, you were making time on people because you were walking so much faster than you think they could bike up. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's a few places where, where I'm walking and they're, they're cycling, which is maybe not so much an advantage, but there's a lot of places where, you know, it doesn't matter what gears you've got, everyone's walking. Right. Um, and then, yeah, if you're just a bit more acclimatized to that, um, that's, that's where you mm. make the difference. I see. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So tell me what gearing you were running. And then I also want to talk about what actual gear, um, I saw a picture of your bike from another event you did. I don't think it was this one, but it, it looked very minimal. What gears were you running and what gear did you bring? There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I was, uh, so the gear I was running was um, 34 chain ring and 20 tooth cog. I've, I've only ever run 34, 19 on the single speed. So I decided to go an extra cog for Highland Trail, yeah. which I mean, it was, it's a pretty big gear. So I think the other two single speeders had uh, like 32, 21 gears, so much smaller wow. gears. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I was kind of, I'm not sure if it was the best gear to be honest. Like the the day before, did a bit of a test ride on the West Highland Way, and like I was I was worried that I'd seriously <laughs> overgeared myself. <laughs> but now with hindsight, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult difficult to tell, isn't it? Because maybe there was some stuff I walked that I could have ridden with a smaller gear. But I mean, I on, on the tarmac, I was I wasn't like spinning out completely like i can yeah. do 25k an hour in that gear quite comfortably 
So, yeah, I mean, it was probably the right gear for me. And I think you, you just make it work, to be honest, right. whatever, whatever <laughs> gear you're running. That's the kind of beauty of single speed is you, right. there's no choice. You just go for what you've got. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that was the gear um, in terms of like the kit I had on me. So I carried quite a lot of stuff this year. So two years ago in 2019, it was like the wettest year ever for that race and the wettest I've ever been and got really cold and probably hypothermic at one point as this year as well um, with COVID you weren't allowed into bothies so which are little like shelters that are open to the public um, that are dotted around the route so we weren't allowed in those so I I decided to play it safe and be a bit more self-sufficient this year so I had a, a like a tarp just a flat single person tarp and then a light bivy bag, like a hip length mat, and then a like a decent three season sleeping bag. So mm. kind of in, enough kit that I was confident that if I'd injured myself or something and it was raining, that I could like sleep it out or just shelter it out for like a day, probably. You never used it. The yeah. Time. Yeah. So I, I just ended up finding shelter on, on all, like, all, the, all the times that it was it was raining. Yeah. But it's, it's nice to have it there, I think, just for peace of mind. Was that a decision informed more by what happened in 2019 or by the fact that you were going single speed and you kind of took the pressure off yourself to maybe be the fastest guy out there? Yeah, I think it's, yeah, maybe probably 2019. I think because especially single speed, like the weight almost matters more because, yeah, it's not a difference between like a few kilometers an hour slower, the the difference between riding and walking. Yes. So... Yeah, I I think it was more my my experience um, <laughs> and kind of feeling like that I was kind of pushing the limit a bit, maybe going too far. Like I didn't, I want to feel, I wanted to feel comfortable this year. Yeah, um, I can certainly relate to that. I think some of you guys that do this stuff are crazy. I love it, but uh, <laughs> yeah, when you're pushing the limits, you you're gonna find the limits sometime, right? And yeah, uh, it's not always comfortable. That was kind of my my sleep kit, and then. So for waterproofs, which is probably the most important thing in Scotland. So I had a, like a Columbia Outdry jacket. Yeah, I think it's the most waterproof jacket uh, you can buy. Uh, and then some waterproof shorts. And then I had a like a, a variety of sort of base layers and a few layers that I sort of kept for sleeping dry. Or if like if, if it was really bad out there, I could then use those as extra emergency layers. So I mean I had I had loads of kit so I had some some like bib tights um and a, a kind of long sleeve that I didn't actually ever pull out of the bag. So yeah it definitely I don't it wasn't like optimized but it was kind of what I needed to feel comfortable to be able to like push myself. Yeah. What about water? Um I, I it looks like Bike Radar has a is that the current one? Yeah, the 2021 Highland Trail. So Bike Radar has some current pictures of your bike set up. I see one water bottle. I'm guessing you had a bladder inside your frame bag. Uh, uh, so I had, I had a um, like one of those running vests as well. So I had okay, water, yeah. water in that and like food uh, and my waterproofs in there so I could just grab them easily. And then, yeah, one bottle on the frame. Um, I mean, I, I know people who've gone around the whole route with just one water bottle. Like water is not a problem. Right. <laughs> yeah. There's, yeah, I can, I can imagine. Did you have any consideration of uh, taking more weight off your bike and putting it on your back for those hike-a-bike sections? 
Uh, a little bit, but um, it was kind of just limited to to water, really. So before a hiker bike, I'd, I'd just drink my the bottle mm. dry, uh, and then just have the water in my bladder. So yeah. I got you. And, and also, you can like you can't really drink out of a bottle and push your bike at the same time, whereas you can do that if you've got a bladder. Oh, smart. Oh, I wanted to ask what tires were you running? So you're rigid, but they look like you got some meaties on there and you got two different rims. Is one carbon and one oh, yeah. aluminum? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that, that's what the you got there. Okay, let's hear it. <laughs> so, well, well, I guess we'll start the tires first. So I had a, a 2.6 WTB Ranger on the front. So it's kind of pretty high volume. Well, for me anyway, that's the biggest tire I've ever, ever used. But quite fast rolling. And then like a 2.2 Onza Svelte. Don't know. It's kind of like a pretty fast rolling XC type tire uh, on the back. Yeah. So the front rim is uh, yeah, it's, it's like a bit mismatched because it's blue, but it's just kind of what I bought, found on eBay that kind of fit the specs. So that's why it's blue. And then the rear rim. Uh, well, I managed to uh, flat spot my the wheel I was going to use like the week before. Um, so that wheel I managed to borrow it off someone actually, like a a fellow a guy James Craven who was also racing. And lives in Bristol with me, so um, mm. I borrowed it off him. And yeah, it's much nicer than the wheel I was going to use, to be honest. So. <laughs> yeah, it looks it looks like a nice wheel. It looks carbon. Yeah, maybe yeah. that was the uh, uh, winning wheel right there. <laughs> yeah, might need to buy him a, a beer. Yeah, yeah. Well, I definitely need to buy him some new hub bearings um. <laughs> <laughs> and some hub bearings. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about what your strategy was going into the race. I mean, obviously you're pretty familiar with the course. You've already won it one time. I mean, what, what was your strategy this year? So yeah, the most, the main thing was kind of race my own race. And yeah, my strategy was like, I'd always planned to stop the first night um, for an hour or two, uh, pretty much exactly where I ended up stopping. Cause I think that's, it's basically exactly the same place that Neil Balchenko stopped at the end of day one in 2017. Um, so I had like Neil's kind of splits um, in my head from the start. And then, yeah, so ended up sleeping basically near where he slept on day two as well. Um, so I got a decent three hours there. And then my intention anyway was to try and ride through the last night uh, from there. But um, yeah, I was just not having a great time. Had a bit of a light failure. Uh, as well and I was just like nah just get a couple of hours you won't it means you don't need two hours worth of lighting and then I, I looked at the tracker at that point and realized I had a massive gap so it's like <laughs> yeah kind of gave me a bit of comfort that I could I could stop and yeah do a decent take a little break yeah I knew that uh Neil when I was researching I saw he raced in 2017 is he the one that has the FKT uh yeah yeah so he I mean, he absolutely. So when when I did it in t- 2016, it took me like four days and a few hours, and then Neil did three days, ten hours. Like the race completely changed that year. Yeah. So since then, the like the race has been totally different. Um, but yeah, he he did a, an amazing amazing time that year. Everybody was having a good time until Neil showed up. At- yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I can remember like sitting down for meals in like restaurants and hotels <laughs> when I did it in 2016. <laughs> not anymore <laughs> oh it's funny to think about right it just it really does show like you know how far the sport has come you know and how dialed you have to be that's cool so you were like 
close to taking down an FKT on on this ride, but you you missed it by a few minutes. Do you know? Yeah, I think I was about uh, I don't know about forty minutes maybe behind Neil's time. Okay, um, but I think the the thing is that the the route kind of changes every year, so it's not directly comparable. So yeah. so this year the route was like twenty. It was like five hundred and seventy miles. Um, so it's about twenty miles longer than Neil's route. Oh, uh... yeah, and the, and the conditions like can can make it totally different. So yeah. So I think when you're racing along, I mean, I I knew I knew what his time was, and it was kind of in my head on the last day. The the race is definitely the most important thing. Why don't you just take us through the race a little bit? Because I'd like to find you know you started out. I know you said you got you were kind of a little bit at the back until you hit not at the back, but I mean the the lead guys ran away until you hit the first hill. Just take us through uh, day one and take us through the race. Yeah, so so as I said, sort of starting off like everyone always goes off way too hard <laughs> on on, the, on these things. So I was kind of hanging around the back of the. We, we set off in because um, of COVID. We set off in waves of eight eight riders. Um, so the kind of Alan had put all the sort of favorites in, in one wave. So I was sort of hanging around the back of those, those eight riders for like most of the first 40, 50 K maybe. Mm. Um, but then after about 50 K you hit the first bog, um, like alongside lock Erisht. And I don't know what it is about that bog, but like in, it was the same in 2019. Like I, I was like 10 minutes faster than anyone else through that bog. <laughs> So I basically just caught and passed everyone who was in front of me uh, kind of on that bog and then the single track that followed. And that was the kind of first time that I realized like, oh, you can actually like, it might be possible to win this thing, like even with this silly bike. Um, so you realize yeah. that, uh, you know, on day one, probably yeah. halfway through on day one. Yeah. I mean, I, I was like really trying not to get too excited, but then kind of for the rest of day one, apart from so sort of Fort Augustus, which is about hundred miles in, there's like quite a big, like a critical feed stop there that, or a shop there that most people stop at because there's a big section after that with no resupply. Um, so I just saw James Hayden coming in there when I left. Um, mm. that, that was the only other person I saw on day one. Um, so I was just trying to, you know, I mean, I kind of riding my own pace really, because there was, there's only one really pace <laughs> right. it's just like you just got to go for it so yeah so day one went went really well the weather was better than i was like had prepared myself for as well um so i ended up stopping kind of where i planned i knew that some people might ride through but kind of wasn't that bothered because it's only day one what time did you stop on that first day let's see it was like uh, like midnight or one i think yeah Ish. I was looking at it right here. Sorry, I'm watching the race. This is so cool. Yeah. I love I love track <laughs> leaders. But I know it's somewhere right around here where you're gonna anyway. Sorry, go ahead. But yeah, yeah so, so you pushed you started at eight o'clock and you pushed till yeah, right about here, 1 30 in the morning. Yeah. Um on your first one. Yeah. And then then uh you got passed while you were sleeping. Yeah. So Josh and Chris Pilabo passed me. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I didn't know any of this, so I just set off on day two, just like back to the back to the pace that I was riding before. Um, but kind of, yeah, as, as things were on, noticed that there were little tire tracks. I mean, the, the route's quite popular these days with just tourers. So it's, it's mm -hmm. a lot harder to like identify tire tracks from the races, but there were, there were two like kind of fresh tire tracks. I figured there were two people up there, um, but I, I had no idea who they were. Can you tell me, um, 
you know, what kind of access you would have had to watching track leaders and, and if you just chose not to or yeah. what your strategy was there? Yeah, I mean, the, the signal in the Highlands is, isn't great, but there's definitely, if you want to, you can, um, you can check it out. So my, my plan was always like not to look at it until the last kind of day, last night just to, to, to avoid getting sucked into a, like a race and sucked into other people's tactics. So I assume that was part of your strategy is just race your yeah. own race. Yeah. Cool. I like yeah, that. Definitely. I think that'd be hard. That would be so hard for me to do. You know, I'm like, <laughs> I, I'd want to watch so much, but uh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It, it well, obviously I'm, worked. Yeah. I mean, I'm also a total like technology Luddite. So just trying to load track leaders on my phone is probably just more effort than <laughs> <laughs> willing to put in it's funny coming from an engineer you know that right i know i'm, I'm a crap i'm a crap engineer like <laughs> well you're a great i don't know about that but you're a great bike racer <laughs> yeah i ride like the least technology bike ever but uh yeah hey, it's working it's working we might all be riding like 1990s hardtails here pretty soon <laughs> funny yeah i wouldn't mind it i anyway that i'm the one gonna go down that rabbit hole but uh yeah. So day two, you just start, you got a couple people in front of you and you just keep riding. Yeah. So I, I gradually pull them in. I realized that one of them is Chris. So I, I thought it was probably James and Josh, James Hayden and Josh who've got ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I kind of pull up to them and notice that it's, it's Chris. Um, so he, his chain ring um, was like, he had a hope direct mount chain ring um, that was loosening and he couldn't tighten it. So like, as soon as I caught him, he basically pulled out. So that that was that, and then I rode with Josh, the kind of very northern bit, northern bit of the loop. Yeah. So when I say rode, it was mostly like pushed, pushed our bikes <laughs> together. Um, there's like, yeah, there's a horrible section where you sort of, you've got to kind of like go down kind of these peat peat hags, and there's one which is maybe like two meters high, and you just sort of throw your bike off it, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then jump down after it. Yeah. Um, what was the reaction when you caught them on day two? You know, they passed you when they were sleeping. I don't know what they were thinking, but maybe they're like, okay, well, that's the last time we'll see him. And then you <laughs> catch up to him. What did they, were they surprised? Yeah, they were. Yeah. I was speaking to Josh. So he thought I was still up the road because he hadn't checked the tracker either. So he thought I was James. Um, so yeah, it was a surprise for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody was like, Oh, it's you. Oh, it's yeah. me. <laughs> oh, that's exciting. All right. Keep going. I'm interested. So yeah, so I rode with Josh like around the top bit and then we hit, there's a, like a 10 mile section of tarmac, which is like probably the hardest 10 miles of tarmac in the UK. Like it's one of the hardest bits of the route and it's on tarmac. Wow. Um, and it's, yeah, really not very much fun on a single speed. So what, uh, what about it makes it difficult? Well, it's basically just sort of like 20% up hills and then 20% downhills, just like repeated about six times okay. um, over the course of 10 miles. Yeah. And it's quite popular, like, like motorhome and like caravan touring route as well these days. Um, so I've only ever done it previously at like 3am. So I, I could absolutely smash the downs and carry momentum. But th this year, we're just sort of on the brakes behind various caravans and stuff. So it was it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> so any, anyway, after that, yeah, session, it sounds exactly where you don't want to be. Yeah, yeah. So after that section, you hit um, a little village called Drumbeg, which is where the stores are that open specially. So we had like a big, big feed there, actually sat down, kind of enjoyed some ice cream and like the shop owners made us coffee. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. 
were you still riding or hanging out with Josh there? At yeah, that point? yeah, yeah. So we got we got that together, but it was kind of yeah. At this point, I was like thinking that I, I needed to get back on my own again. So he was having some GPS problems, so he was trying to like charge charges GPS at, at the shop. Um, okay, okay. So I got a bit of a head start on him, like maybe a minute. Just said oh, I'll see you in a bit because there's another stretch of tarmac after that, and then kind of yeah, ju- just at the end of that tarmac, you kind of turn back onto trail, um, and it's one of the more tricky navigation spots. And I, I, I could see him behind him, but I think he missed the missed the turn there. Um, and basically, that was it. I kind of once I could see that he hadn't made the turn, I just yeah went went for it for like the next four hours, like really. Uh-huh force the pace because there's after that is there's like that 10 mile flat push over like a boulder fields so yeah i just like really wanted to get get the gap through that section so yeah i mean i, I was definitely racing at that point like game yeah. on yeah exactly it's like game on and i knew I, I knew that i wasn't going to stop for resupply that day and like most of the following day but i was kind of comfortable that i had everything i needed uh-huh. And I had a kind of, I had a bit of a suspicion that maybe Josh wasn't as prepared for like this resupply situation the following day. Um, so that kind of, yeah, I, I knew what I was going to do basically for the next few days from that point. Yeah. You felt pretty good about where you were at and your plan. Yeah. And exactly. then it's just a matter of executing it. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of from that point on, really, it was just, yeah, just keep pushing forwards because that, that's the last time I kind of saw anyone else. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That was the last time you saw anybody there, right? Yeah. You took a nap, I guess, uh, end of day two? Yeah. Or beginning of day three, something like that? Yeah, so that was in uh, Alapur, which is one of the bigger towns en route. So yeah, that was just in like an archway. Uh, Yeah, next to like a motorbike. (laughs) Yeah, another like, I had some pretty terrible places. Like it was definitely not some great bivy spots on this on this ride um, but yeah it, it was absolutely pissing down at that point as well so it was just sheltered that was the main thing and well yes, if you're not in a very comfortable spot you won't be tempted to stay there too long yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's kind of a balance between uh, getting a decent night's sleep but also getting up getting yeah up. what what did you have i mean i know uh, you slept exactly where you wanted to um night one from there on, did you have a strategy? If so, did you stick to it? Yeah, so so Ullapool, that that's kind of I really wanted to get to Ullapool at the end of night two. Because usually uh, it's got a big shop there. So usually you would like resupply there when it opened at 8 a.m. But yeah, I I like I knew that I was gonna miss that. Um, so I had all my kit. So I really wanted just to stop there and set off and kind of maybe in the bit of the hope that people behind would have to wait for that shop to open. So yeah, day two was definitely, that's kind of, I had Ullapool in mind for where to stop. And then day, day three is kind of the crux of the route. So I, I always think that the route or the race kind of starts in Ullapool. Because mm. um, from there you go into a, a section across a bit called Fishfield Forest, uh, which has got no trees. But it's, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, it's a fish to, forest. It's all down very low. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's the claim to fame is that it's like the most remote place on the mainland UK. Like okay. somewhere in there is the furthest point from a, a tarmac road anywhere in the UK. But it's just like this amazing kind of well, not wilderness, but there's there's sort of peaks around and it does feel like you you're on your own there. Oh nice. Um, and there's also 
kind of a, one of the famous river crossings where there's maybe like a 50 meter wide um, river that you've got to cross. Um, so there's been some like pretty amazing photos in the past of people uh, like chest deep carrying their bike across. Oh man. I mean, it, it was raining all day that day, um, but that, that crossing was actually one of the, because it, it's, it's not flowing very fast at that point. Um, so it, it's just intimidating, but it's not really that dangerous. It was like knee level on me. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that, those high waters, that, that's scary. Because you don't know if like a tree is going to be in, coming down, you know, or anything, you know, I mean, anything could swoop you or whatever. Yeah. yeah. It's a little, little sketchy. How much time were you sleeping? It looks like a few hours each time. Yeah. So uh, I think the first night I set my alarm for two hours, the second night, three hours, and then the last night, two hours again. So yeah. I had like seven hours of, in, in quotes, sleep um, with like a bit of time around that, I guess, getting set up and packing away. You've been doing this endurance stuff for a while now. And I mean, even with cycling and stuff, but you, the, the question mark you had was around sleep and you didn't know how you would, um, you know, coming into endurance racing, how your body and mind would, would react. And I'm, I guess I'm curious, like how, how do you handle the lack of sleep and all that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of difficult because I think it's, it's not something you kind of, you can train, yeah like you can get a bit of experience about what you can get away with but i'm not sure how like trainable that is right um and so i mean in, in 2016 yeah i had like over more than twice as much sleep as i did this year um and i, I thought like, that was like not very much <laughs> um but I, I i think it's just kind of looking at like what other people like in other races like N neil on, on hiding trail in 2017 hardly slept and you kind of you can you realize what's what's possible and kind of feel that you know these people are doing this so why why can't you yeah yeah and i think and now people are going to be like oh i guess maybe i could go and race the highland trail on a rigid single speed you know <laughs> that's kind of how it works is people it's like it opens your eyes and your mind to something that you know you weren't aware of y'all were all eating at pubs until 2017 and neil came <laughs> <Yeah>. along <laughs> and took a day off the record oh not quite a day but he took a yeah. big chunk off of it he did yeah that, that's how it works really yeah it's, you get these breakthroughs that's but that's that's kind of the fun part about it it would be boring if it just okay well that's what it is yeah. so uh what what strategies if any um do you use to stay awake i don't know caffeine pills do you listen to music do you what, what do you do to like keep pushing yeah so i had um like a bunch of caffeine pills with me and i, I didn't take a single one Oh, nice. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I don't take any music either. So I don't know. I, I never actually felt like sleepy. It's weird to say. Like the, the only times I, I felt feel sleepy are when I hit like tarmac or what, like when, when you hit a boring bit of trail. Mm. So on, on those, I just tried to eat basically like occupy myself by eating, which, which sort of worked. But yeah, I mean, a, a, as soon as you hit or as soon as I hit like fun trail again, like, yeah, I didn't feel sleepy or tired at all. So yeah, maybe that's, uh, an advantage of single speed rigid is, uh, you know, you can't, you know, the full suspension isn't going to take away the bumps and everything and kind of lull you into sleep. You're going to get rocked a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to be on your like a game on some of those trails without suspension. Um, and yeah, that, like that, that's the sort of riding that I, I love as well. 
Um, so mm. that's what I was trying to tell myself is like, yeah, this is kind of a privilege to be out here and like, you should be having fun. Why aren't you having fun? <laughs> Have some fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing to remind yourself. It really is, man. It, it, yeah. it's a, I, I can imagine in the time, in the moment, it could be difficult, but um, I think it's it's a worthwhile pursuit mentally to try to realize, you know, you signed up, nobody made you. This is where you want to be and all that, all that jazz. Yeah. So let's go back to that question that we touched on earlier about you know, what is your personal motivation to push yourself whenever it's, you know, hard, cold, tired, all the things. I mean, where, where, do, you, where do you go that keeps you pushing and moving forward? Yeah. So, well, I think my like default state is, is one of like pushing myself. So I, I'm not someone who can kind of go for a ride on, on their own and like just pull around uh-huh. for a few hours. Like I'm, I'm always kind of trying to push myself. So I think that's, that's kind of just part of who I am. Um, okay. So that, I think that's, that's a big part of doing these races is just the, the kind of curiosity about, about what I can do. I think this year as well, there was a bit of like, a bit of like redemption or feeling like I needed a bit of redemption in there after 2019 and DNFing in that race. Because in that race, I'd kind of like shown a little bit of what I was capable of to myself. So yeah, this this year coming back, it was a bit like, yeah, now it's time to like really kind of see see what you've got. That's how I was kind of thinking about it. Yeah. Do you um do you care too much about winning or do you care more about you know showing yourself what you can and can't do and 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 looking at it through that that prism? I would say I'm I'm more intrinsically motivated, but that's not that's not to say that like winning doesn't also yeah. motivate me. See, <laughs> so, yeah, I think I was yeah, really trying quite hard to like get away from that. Um, like competitive aspect with other people and yeah that was kind of all tied up in the sort of bike I chose and kind of just seeing myself a bit as as an underdog in my own head as well Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that helped yeah I I just think it's it's a much like more robust like place to be mentally if if you're just seeing it as a personal challenge than if if you're racing other people Now, let's say in 2022, you line up for this race again. Do you think you'll be able to keep that same mindset? I'm, I, yeah, I'm not sure, to be honest. It'd be um, tough, maybe. Yeah, and I think, I mean, yeah, obviously people are asking me about next year. Um, Already, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say that at this stage, like, I, I won't be putting my entry in. That's like my kind of current position. And I, th- I think it was because, I've, yeah, I feel like I've kind of done it in a few different ways. These, I think these races are all about like the experience that you have. And I, I don't want to be try, trying to chase the same experience. Um, yeah. I think just if you keep doing that, you, you end up falling short and being mm. disappointed. I think if, if I did it again, it would have to be like in a different way again. Um, and I, yeah, at the moment, I'm not sure what that, what that would look yeah, like. Yeah, you already took away the suspension and gear. So <laughs> yeah. maybe next time don't bring a busy and don't bring clothes or anything. <laughs> yeah. My other half's talking about like doing it on a tandem, but uh, yeah. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love that idea. I really uh, want to do I get. I want a tandem for my girlfriend and I. I love it. So what other events or races are you interested in, you know? Yeah, so... Um, there's a, there's a few, uh, sorry, routes like in the UK that are kind of similar that I've kind of got my eye on this summer. Um, th- those are all like shorter sort of day or overnighter type rides. 
but kind of yeah the, the the races have always like captured my imagination i guess so like the the colorado trail and the arizona trail mm-hmm. um so i i was kind of all set to do the colorado trail in 2018 um, i'd booked flights and everything uh but like a month before i got like a weird like numbness in my legs um that i still didn't, didn't manage to diagnose what it was but um i decided not to take the risk of risk of going to altitude and racing and Mm. You, you put your you put your body into like a big hole, especially yeah. altitude. So um, it didn't seem worth it. So there's, I would like to go back and do the Colorado Trail. Oh, nice! Um, it just looks, yeah, it looks amazing. It's kind of well. There's been a lot of single speeders out on the uh, on that one recently, uh, laying down some fast time. So yeah, that's cool. Have you done any racing in the states yet? I think no, no, no. Yeah. I've never never been to the states. Uh, I've never been to UK. We'll have to visit each other one day. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully I would love to see you come to America. Yeah. And I'd, I'd love to go to the UK one day, honestly. I've never been across the pond. So, so much to see. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty different. Everything's like really close together here, I guess, if you're coming from the UK. From the US. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah. Yeah. For sure. But I think that would be, uh, yeah. Especially like I live in Texas, you know, I don't know how Texas compares to the UK, but it's probably, I don't know. You've seen those maps where it might even be about the same size. So yeah. it's just, just a whole different place. But, um, I wanted to ask you, and this is kind of a big question, maybe hard to answer, but can you describe like how physically and mentally hard it was for you to win this race? Like how deep did you have to dig? And yeah, I'll leave it there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to describe, I guess, to like someone who's not tried to get into that mentality, maybe. Um, but yeah, for those, for those four days, like all I can describe it of is like all, all I was thinking of is just forward progress. Um, just like every little, little aspect of what you do. Um, just thinking like, is this contributing to moving forwards or not? Um, so before the race, I'd kind of, like I have this habit often of like, even in, in a, like a supermarket, go in and then eat my food, like outside the supermarket, just sort of standing around or sitting down. Mm. So I was like going into the race, I was like, right, there's, there's going to be no like standing outside shops. You just put your stuff on your bike and then eat whatever mm. you bought to eat then, like whilst you're riding along. And it's just that like all consuming mentality of, of moving forwards. And it's just that for four days. And it's like, it's quite intense, but it's also like really simple um like doing these races is a it's like a really simple life compared to everyday life mm. um there's no like you, you don't think about what's coming after or like what's in your diary or whatever all you think about mm. is like moving forwards where can i buy food and where can i sleep that's not soaking wet so yeah how do you what, what about mentally overcoming the pain the sleep deprivation that kind of stuff is that is that easier for you to do by just focusing on relentless forward progress and yeah i think so yeah you, you just got to distract yourself really i think like have a we got to have a really strong why i guess like why why are you doing it that makes all this worth it and then yeah just like in in the kind of that that kind of relentless forward progress is like in in the background the whole time but then i guess just li- little things um just trying to appreciate uh like your surroundings or like the animal life or just really focus in on the bit of trail that you're trying to negotiate the kind of mm-hmm. little micro bits of attention to try and take your mind off, off how you might be feeling. 
but yeah it's a hard one to describe like when i think back to those four days it almost feels like it's a different it's a different person <laughs> um there's like whole sections that i can't really remember very well yeah it's yeah, it's interesting yeah yeah it's it's crazy how um how hard people can push themselves i've never pushed myself like that so i can't exactly relate i've been sleep deprived and stuff but um uh, it's just a whole nother level, but I guess that's what it is, right? It's just levels and levels upon levels. And then one day you're single speed rigid on the Highland trail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess it does. Doesn't it? Can you surmise what it was like to win this year's race? I mean, again, a really pretty stacked field. Anytime you see James or Josh's name for me in the, in the lineup, you know, I think it's going to be a fast race. You know who those guys are. What was it like to win this this one? For me, it was kind of like a bit of redemption. Kind of, it, it just felt it's like really satisfying, I guess, to like do the race that I kind of always knew that I had in me, um, but for the past few years, just haven't been able to produce. So, I mean, before the race, I was kind of like, as you do, sort of daydreaming, like what's what are you going to do or what's it going to feel like on the finish line when you win this race? Like, are you going to get all emotional and whatever? Mm -hmm. um, but then when, when I finished, like all, all I could feel was just like, just a big sense of satisfaction, just like everything that I wanted to do, I, I kind of did. So yeah, it was just, just a really good satisfaction. I think that the fact that it was such a, a strong field just kind of added to that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think I, you said it perfectly. It adds to it. You have to go out there and do your best and that's what everybody's going to do. Right. And, um, but it's got to add a little bit to it whenever, you know, there's, yeah. there's some really heavy hitters in the field and, you know, it was kind of a stacked, maybe not a stacked deck, but you know, it was, it was a legit field out there. Yeah. And it was, a, it was a good race too. I mean, in the beginning, there was a lot of back and forth day two, y'all were pretty close and, uh, you didn't really solidify until that end, which I guess is where you said the uh, the race kind of starts for you. And maybe that's a little bit of your experience there paying off. I don't know. Yeah, I, th I think the, the kind of field, you think about it a bit when you're racing, but I think it's it's mostly afterwards when, like, especially this year, the kind of interest and stuff and you, like, you step back and you think, yeah, that was, that was pretty yeah. good. Like, yeah. Here's my last question on this. What was the biggest challenge that you had to overcome for this event i think it was the the just like starting it even in the in the first place in the right mindset because of covid as well it'd been delayed a whole year and that's like an extra year of you know worrying about it and stressing about it so i think but to be honest the hardest bit is just getting to the start line in a mm -hmm. you know like a, a place where you're kind of happy to take whatever comes I felt like I, I did that. I can remember saying to my other half, like, you know, I'm like totally prepared for like four days of rubbish weather. Mm -hmm. um, like I'm totally prepared to, you know, put myself in a massive hole that I might not get out of for the whole summer. Like just accepting. I got to a place where I just like accepted that that was, that was fine. Um, and then anything else is just a bonus from that point. So I think that's the hardest thing because like the, the riding your bike bit, unless you have like massive mechanical or something, it's not that, that hard really. Yeah. And you know, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that quite that way before, but I, it really kind of puts it in perspective how much work goes into, um, into these races. And, you know, it's that saying, if you 
fail to plan, you plan to fail. So like, if you don't put in the work and you just show up on race day, that's not when you do the work, right? That's not when you figure it out mentally. That's not when you get in the right headspace and the logistics and all that, you know, at that point, it's just show up and do what you've been training for. Yeah. 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 I like that. Yeah. I mean, some people like just showing up might take the pressure off and that might be like a valid, a valid way of doing it. But I'm, I'm just one of those people that will like stress, stress over something for, you know, all the months leading up to it. So yeah, just feeling like getting to a place where you just feel accepting of what might happen. I think that's the key for me anyway. Yeah. I like that. Now, uh, I want to ask you this question, getting a little bit away from the race, but you've been racing and participating in these ultra endurance races since 2016, right? So five years now, do you have any opinions on the direction that bikepacking is heading as a sport? I mean, it's developed a lot. Do you like it? Are there things that you'd like to change? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, for, for me, like the reason I got into bikepacking is because it was fun and it's about like a personal challenge. Um, and, you know, it's, it's never going to be a, a job or anything for me. It's always what I do as a hobby and for fun. So yeah, I, I can see that the that's kind of events popping up that are more commercial and that you know people are making a living out of bikepacking now. And I mean, I'm not I'm not against that. That's that's fine. But I definitely sort of gravitate towards uh, events like like the Highland Trail where Alan just because it's a cool thing to do, really. Mm-hmm. And he, all he asks is a, a donation or like a donation to the John Muir Trust. Um, yeah. So I, I definitely gravitate towards those kind of more low key events where where you know that yeah people are just doing it for like the sake of the the sport rather than any monetary yeah monetary reasons. I think you we know, can see. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, well, the reason I asked yeah. the question is because so I'm nothing against the like more commercial aspects, but yeah, go for it. <laughs> no, no, no. It, yeah, it's fine to clarify your statement i know you don't want to bash on what other people um, have going on or anything that's but i mean you you are entitled to your own opinion and the reason i asked the question is because i'm concerned or i don't know if i'm concerned i'm aware that this is a a sport that's growing that's getting a lot more interest that means money's going to come in and you know maybe the rules are going to get stricter maybe there's going to be drug testing i mean all this stuff you know that we see in other um in other sports and me for one, and, and sounds like you too, would like to see this remain close to the ethos of the sport and grassroots as possible. But in my mind, we have to also allow for growth, you know? So yeah. it's, it's, a, it's an interesting time in our sport. And the reason I like to have these conversations is because I hope that we can get it right, you know, because the story hasn't been written yet and we get a chance to kind of shape what the future looks like. And so, yeah, I don't know. What does your utopian uh, ultra endurance bikepacking yeah. world look like? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good question. So yeah, I absolutely think that the the like the heart of bikepacking or like the is the kind of ethos that it was first set up with the kind of self supported, you know, no entry fees. It's it's like a it's basically just a, an individual time trial with a suggested start date that everyone gets together. Um, there's still a few quite a lot of events that still do that way, like. To me, that that's how it should stay, um, and it, it might sound a bit exclusive, but I, I think that's actually like quite inclusive. Like I do think 
kind of we have to broaden the kind of diversity of the people involved um but yeah i don't think you do that by having expensive events and like people needing to buy loads of expensive gear um mm -hmm. I, i think that yeah just like really lowering the bar so like free entry to events and just showing that you don't need that much kit to get around like it's about your skills and your experience to me that's that's a much better way of kind of promoting inclusivity i like it. i mean and you were a good example of this on this race and in, in particular about you know not needing the coolest fastest most expensive bike i mean don't get me wrong your bike is cool and i'd probably like to ride it more than the other <laughs> ones uh I, i tend to gravitate towards those kind of bikes as well but you know what i'm saying i mean it wasn't the ten thousand dollar dialed canon bike or, or yeah. whatever you know i mean it my uh, salsa fargo i bought it for 900 used it's fully rigid single speed bike like that's a bike i could you know based on your experience I could take my $900 bike and go out and, and do that, that route, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, that's the great thing about it. Um, is that, you know, people can take whatever they've got and still have a great experience. Like it might be different to someone else's, but it's, it's their own and it will still have like great parts to it. Yeah. Well, I love, I love the records. I love watching people go fast and obviously you do too, but I appreciate that you see the bigger picture and, and uh, it sounds like you're, um, you're inspiring yourself to find your own limits and you're there to experience the trail, experience the race, but you know, results are cool, but that's not, that's not the only thing. Did I put words in your mouth or is that? No, that's, yeah, that's a good summation. I think. Yeah. <laughs> My last question for you was going to be if uh, if professional ultra endurance cyclist was on on your radar, um, but it <laughs> sounds like you already answered that one. Yeah, probably not. I think um, yeah, I, I quite actually I quite like having like something else in my life, almost to like distract me and to stop me obsessing over things. Hmm. So yeah, I think it's, it's it's a balance. I'd like to work like three days a week, maybe or four days a week. <laughs> but yeah, I think the. You know some of the aspects of being a like a pro bike packer if that even exists really just around social media and stuff like i, I know i'm not prepared to, to, to do that um so i'm totally happy yeah i'm totally accepting that yeah i'm not gonna make a living out of it i think you could be wrong like if you look at alexander houchin who's probably one of the most famous bike packers there is on the planet right now She doesn't have social media at all. She only has her blog. She rides for Chumba. And I'm, I, I have a Chumba, right? I don't ride for Chumba, but I, I ride a Chumba. And uh, I mean, they, they handle her social media. I mean, it's like if they post something, like that's the only yeah. social media you're going to see from her. So I, I think that there, you know, this is the type of sport where there's not only are there people that are doing it that way, but I think we're the type of community that respects and understands why someone may not want to be really engaged in social media and stuff like that. So I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, if, yeah, if, if you can do that, that's, that's super cool. Like, okay. So maybe then respect. you'd be interested. Yeah. I mean, if it, if it mostly revolved around me riding my bike in cool places. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. I don't know who well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, th th this is another interesting conversation I like to have just because I think what a endurance pro cyclist is, is still being written as well. I mean, Lael mm. is, is one. 
I think James still has a James Hayden still has a real job. I haven't talked to him in a little while, but um, you know, most of these people have, have real jobs. I think Lael's the only one I know of who's like a fully sponsored endurance cyclist. So, um, but from my perspective, and you can probably see in the last five years, how much growth there's been, it wouldn't surprise me if you kept winning races and especially on your cool bike and a kind of spec. I mean, you really, I mean, you put down a fast time. I mean, you were, I mean, you were, you know, minutes away from an FKT. I mean, that was a legit impress effort. So it wouldn't surprise me if like a company called and said, Hey, you know, <laughs> Yeah, I know. Um, the the guy at Studio actually said that. Yeah, if I wanted anything, just to give him a shout, which is uh, nice. yeah, holla. I would I would <laughs> want something if I was you. <laughs> That's all right. He's just a, a one man band, so yeah. That's I'm, awesome. I'm just happy to. I'm yeah. just glad that he made such a fun bike. To be honest, like I'm, yeah. I'm thankful for him. Yeah. I, I love that, man. That's how it all started for me is uh, I like to showcase the smaller brands. And I mean, Rock Guys now is a pretty well-known, but the first episode I did was with Rock Guys and they weren't super well-known and Chumbo's not super well-known. And um, I like to support the the little guy, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, trying to make it. All right, bud. Well, um, what's next for you? You going to just go back to work and start training for the next event or what? Yeah, pretty much. Like, yeah, already back at work, just trying to recover. And well, I hadn't really planned anything uh, for the rest of the summer, um, just because you never know how you're going to come out of these things. So yeah, I guess just figure out, figure out what I'm going to do. There's going to be yeah. at least one holiday, like actual holiday in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I would assume, uh, unless you've done this already, but you need to get out on kind of a long ride and check in with your body and see how it's you know, I mean, you yeah, feel yeah. fine sitting on the couch, but I think, you know, go and put yeah. on the 100, 200K and it might be a different story. Yeah, I think I still a few weeks off, but uh, <laughs> <yeah>, slowly. <laughs> right on, dude. Well, I mean, uh, one thing that I really took away from this uh, was how you you keep pushing, uh, keep pushing for your own, own sake, you know, and how you had so many DNFs and things didn't go your way, but it never stopped you from, let's just use that relentless forward progress. I mean, you used it in a race and then you used it on the macro, just like, nope, haven't done it yet. Nope, haven't done it yet. And you just kept going back and hitting it and hitting it and hitting it until, I mean, it wasn't a story of just this one race, you know, it's a story of like five years of you like building up and failing. And and I, I love that, not because you fail, because people only say, Oh, Liam, he did this, right. He's on bikepacking.com and he's on bikes for death podcast. But what we didn't get to see was how many times you failed and how many times you cried yourself to sleep at night or whatever. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's easy to see like, yeah. If you just paid attention to this race as if I sort of came out of nowhere. Right. Um, but yeah, it doesn't feel like that to me anyway. Well, and no offense, but that's what it felt like to me. Yeah. But again, and I mean, I'm not to bring it back to my podcast again, but it really is. This is what gets me excited is, is um, like Liam Glenn, who is this guy, you know, and then you go on Google and you're like, well, there's not a lot of information, but, you know, and, and, and then you get to talk to him. So it's, it's been a pleasure to get to talk to you. And um, I, uh, I enjoyed, um, yeah, I enjoyed watching you race. At least I enjoyed watching your dot and uh, looking forward to more dot watch in the future. Hopefully you'll be able to come to uh, Colorado Trail. I'd love to meet up with you in person. Maybe interview you at the end of the race. That'd be cool. 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I'll give you a shout if I come over. All right. Sounds good. All right, buddy. We'll rest up. And uh, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure is all mine. All right. All right. Pretty cool, huh? So exciting to get to know people just in real time like that. You can research uh, a podcast or research for the podcast and come in with very little and learn so much more and be really surprised. And that certainly happened in this episode. So thanks again to Liam for coming on the podcast. It was a true pleasure to get to catch up with you and uh, and learn from you. I'm looking forward to definitely seeing uh, you line up again. And uh, I really do love the whole single speed vibe that's going on. It's really interesting how we're seeing single speed be able to compete for races and not just be in their own category, but take the overall. I think it's amazing. And I, I still don't completely understand it, but it happened. So, and Liam proved it. All right, everybody. Well, I just wanted to, again, thank, thank, thank all of the patrons. I cannot tell you, I think we've doubled the support in the last 30 days. I mean, that's just incredible. Just here in the last couple of weeks, I think we've added about $240 in pledges. So this thing is ramping up quickly. I couldn't be more stoked. I'm a little bit in shock, but here's the deal, man. We are getting closer and closer and closer to making this my full-time job. And this isn't just for me. This is going to allow me to produce a better podcast, spend more time editing, be a little bit more creative, better equipment, be able to travel more and pick up more guests. I'll tell you what, I get a lot of requests for like Michigan, Washington, you know, areas that are pretty far away from me, but I really, really, really want to get there. But listen, it's time and money, right? If I got to take time away from my job to go do a podcast and spend money to do the podcast and all that stuff, then, you know, it's just got to make economic sense. I am pouring everything into this and you guys are giving it right back to me. So let's keep it going. Uh, if you haven't signed up as a Patreon yet, you'll notice that there weren't any advertisers today. This show was brought to you solely by you and the patrons that support this show. Tomorrow, I am leaving on another podcasting trip. I'm going to be catching up with Bobby Wintle and a few other guests there in Stillwater, Oklahoma. It is so much fun getting on the road, and I think that part of this response we've seen on Patreon is from the quality of the podcast. Uh, at least that's the feedback that I'm getting from people. And that is a direct result of being able to travel to them and sit down face to face and have a conversation. I'm not taking anything away from today's episode. You know, Liam's across the pond. I can't drive to him. I could maybe fly. Actually, not right now. There's no way they let me fly there, right? That's still locked down. So I'm so grateful for technology to be able to reach out to people like Liam. But when possible, I am always going to make an effort to have one-on-one -on -one conversations, sit down with people face-to-face -face because the quality of conversation is better. It just allows for people to be a little bit more relaxed. You pick up on social cues, whatever it is. It just equals a better conversation, and y'all have seen that. So I, you know, I say it every week, but it really does matter. And uh, y'all are showing up big time, and I'm going to keep on keeping on. The future is looking very bright indeed. 29 new patrons since the last episode. Do you think we can beat that? I don't know. Let's find out. Hit me with your best shot. Fire away. Oh, God, that's bad. 
How about this? How about if you sign up as a patron, I'll promise to never sing again. All right, everybody. Seriously, thank you so much for tuning into the episode today. To learn more about how you can support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash bikes or death and catch up with everything that we're doing at bikesordeath.com. And if you're not already, consider signing up for our newsletter. You can find the link on the website. Did you know that that is the best way to keep up with what's going on in the BOD world? And every month we raffle off a $20 gift card to the Bikester Death store special just for our newsletter subscribers. It's a great way to keep up with everything going on with Bikes or Death in case you missed anything or you want to be the first to know about something. And you could win some cool merch too. How does that sound? All right, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Thank you for being here today. You know what to do. Now go ride your damn bike. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You let that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. 